Hello, and welcome to The Daily Poem. I'm Heidi White, filling in for David Kern, and today is Tuesday, August 18th. Today's poem is by an American poet named Billy Collins. He was born in 1941, uh, and Collins is one of the most well-known and influential poets writing in the contemporary landscape of American letters today. Uh, he served as the U.S. Poet Laureate uh, for two terms from 2001 to 2003, and then he transitioned to being the New York State Poet Laureate from 2004 to 2006. Um, his uh, credentials are many, but I wanted to point out uh, one particularly special honor for him. In 2002, while he was the U.S. Poet Laureate, uh, Collins was asked by Congress to write a poem commemorating the first anniversary of the fall of the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. Uh, the reading was done in front of a joint session of Congress held outside of Washington, D.C., a high honor indeed, and it's a, a lovely poem. But that's not the poem I'm going to read for you today. Uh, I'm going to read a poem called Aristotle. It's a long poem, so I'll read it once and then offer a few brief comments. I think once is all we'll have time for. Aristotle. This is the beginning. Almost anything can happen. This is where you find the creation of light. A fish wriggling onto land the first word of paradise lost on an empty page. Think of an egg, the letter A, a woman ironing on a bare stage as the heavy curtain rises. This is the very beginning. The first person narrator introduces himself, tells us about his lineage. The mezzo-soprano stands in the wings. Here, the climbers are studying a map or pulling on their long woolen socks. This is early on years before the ark, dawn. The profile of an animal is being smeared on the wall of a cave, and you have not yet learned to crawl. This is the opening, the gambit, a pawn moving forward an inch. This is your first night with her, your first night without her. This is the first part where the wheels begin to turn, where the elevator begins its ascent before the doors lurch apart. This is the middle. Things have had time to get complicated. Messy, really. Nothing is simple anymore. Cities have sprouted up along the rivers, teeming with people at cross purposes. A million schemes, a million wild looks. Disappointment unshoulders his knapsack here and pitches his ragged tent. This is the sticky part, where the plot congeals, where the action suddenly reverses or swerves off in an outrageous direction. Here, the narrator devotes a long paragraph on why Miriam does not want Edward's child. Someone hides a letter under a pillow. Here, the aria rises to a pitch, a song of betrayal, salted with revenge. And the climbing party is stuck on a ledge halfway up the mountain. This is the bridge, the painful modulation. This is the thick of things. So much is crowded into the middle. The guitars of Spain, piles of ripe avocados, Russian uniforms, noisy parties, lakeside kisses, arguments heard through a wall. Too much to name, too much to think about. And this is the end. The car running out of road, the river losing its name in an ocean. 
the long nose of the photographed horse touching the white electronic line. This is the colophon, the last elephant in the parade, the empty wheelchair, and pigeons floating down in the evening. Here the stage is littered with bodies. The narrator leads the characters to their cells, and the climbers are in their graves. It is me hitting the period and you closing the book. It is Sylvia Plath in the kitchen and St. Clement with an anchor around his neck. This is the final bit, thinning away to nothing. This is the end. According to Aristotle, what we have all been waiting for, what everything comes down to, the destination we cannot help imagining, a streak of light in the sky, a hat on a peg, and outside the cabin, falling leaves. A friend of mine posted this poem on Facebook yesterday, and I spent a long time meditating on it and thinking through. Uh, it's a, a complex poem. In a sense, it's long, but in another sense, it's pretty simple. It's three stanzas long. Uh, the first stanza begins with, this is the beginning. The second stanza with, this is the middle. The final stanza with, and this is the end. And each of the stanzas uh, gives a litany or a, a, a list of things that might happen in a story in the beginning, the middle, and the end. Uh, and I, I was particularly drawn to the multiple levels of human uh, stories that he contemplates in his descriptions of beginning, middle, and end. He talks about the individual human life. Uh, this is your first night with her, your first night without her. He also talks about stories, uh, the first word of paradise lost on an empty page. Um, this is the very beginning the first person narrator introduces himself, tells us about his lineage. And then he also uh, describes the beginning of history. This is early on, years before the ark, dawn, the profile of an animal is being smeared on the wall of a cave. And he moves pretty seamlessly in this litany, uh, in these three litanies, between the beginning of a work of art, beginning, middle, and end of a work of art, the beginning, middle, and end of a story, the beginning, middle, and end of human history. And he appears to be contemplating what that means, right? The, what does it mean to be at the beginning of something? He kind of goes into how it feels. Even the choices that he makes of the examples and images uh, have a sense of expectancy about them, a sense of new beginning, of freshness. Um, this is the beginning. Almost anything can happen. This is where you find the creation of light, a fish wriggling onto land. Uh, there's this sense of dawning expectancy and hope in this first stanza that examines beginnings. Uh, and then in the second stanza, he moves on to the middle, the middle of a story, uh, the middle of a human life, uh, the middle of history. And he calls it the sticky part, where the plot congeals, where the action suddenly reverses. Uh, he talks and contemplates in this section about disappointments and complications. Uh, he says, things have had time to get complicated, messy, really. Nothing is simple anymore. Um, cities have sprouted along rivers. That's 
where he goes into history. Um, the narrator devotes a long paragraph to why Miriam does not want Edward's child. There we have a story. Disappointment unshoulders his knapsack here and pitches his ragged tent. Uh, here's He's contemplating in this middle part of the poem how the middle of a story, the middle of a human life, the middle of history feels messy, uh, complicated, and hard. And then he transitions again to the final paragraph, and this is the end. The car running out of road, the river losing its name in an ocean, the long nose of the photographed horse. And he, again, he, he seems to be focusing here on this in this final paragraph, not on a happy ending, but on potentially hard endings. He says here, the stage is littered with bodies. The narrator leads the characters to their cells. He says, this is the final bit thinning away to nothing. And then he references Sylvia Plath in the kitchen. Of course, that's a suicide. St. Clement with an anchor around his neck. That's a martyrdom. So he's focusing here on death, that the end of the story is death. Um, and I find that interesting because the title of the poem is Aristotle. And for those of you who've been wondering about the connection, uh, Aristotle, he wrote a, a treatise called Poetics, which laid out in Aristotle's view uh, the great elements of great tragedy. And he examines what it means to write a tragic story that will appeal to an audience and why tragedy makes the case that tragedy is better than comedy and that tragedy is the greatest form of uh, human storytelling. And so Billy Collins in this, uh, this poem is contemplating that, right? He's, he seems to be asking the question, particularly in the final paragraph, of is tragedy the very best ending, uh, as Aristotle claims? And he seems to be posing uh, the question of whether that is the very best way to tell a story. The examples that he gives are sad. The examples that he gives uh, lead to death and end in death. Uh, but interestingly enough, his examples don't seem to have that quality of grandeur that Aristotle is making the claim that great tragedy should and does have. Uh, so this is a, a poem that has many, many threads within it. Uh, it goes from the particular uh, to the general, which is what all great poems do. Um, look at something small that opens up the reader into something bigger, something beyond us. And most great poems in this one uh, particularly does this, will also um, kind of play around with with the ideas of love and death and 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 what it means to live a good uh, or satisfying human life. And so in this final stanza, Billy Collins does seem to be asking the question of whether or not a tragic ending is really as satisfying as Aristotle claims. Uh, or else, on the other hand, uh, again, posing the question of whether or not his examples that he's giving in this poem does, whether they do the same thing that Aristotle claims would be a great tragedy. Is Sylvia Plath's suicide in the kitchen? Uh, is the climbers who didn't make it to the top of the mountain and are now in their graves? Uh, are Is that tragedy the same kind of tragedy that Aristotle is referring to in the poetics? Uh, so uh, on one sense, this is a pretty straightforward poem. It goes from beginning, middle, and end and gives examples of each and uh, invites readers to 
uh, connect with those examples and ask questions for themselves on what makes a good beginning, middle, and end to various kinds of stories. Uh, but there is an underlying thread of uh, a deconstruction of some of the more traditional ideas about what it means to tell a great story and what it means to live a great story. Um, so uh, we don't have time to read it one more time, but I invite you to find it, this lovely poem, and contemplate it for yourselves. This has been The Daily Poem, and we'll see you next time for another poem.